Welcome to One Haas, a podcast devoted to bringing the Haas community closer together through your stories. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and my mission is to help open our eyes to the network we never knew we had. So we're joined by a special guest today, our um, much beloved Dean Lyons of Berkeley Haas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So today, what we wanted to bring you in for was to talk about the defining leadership principles, Mm -hmm. the hallmark of your tenure here, we would say for us. Personally, for me, you know, coming into school back in August, a year ago now, the DLPs were really what made me proud. It gave me a huge sense of pride being here and then just seeing fellow students also share these principles Mm -hmm. as well. Before we go into that, um, I did have some burning questions for you. Okay. So in terms of your background, so we can hear kind of where all these ideas came from. You talk about in the case study that your time at Goldman Sachs as the chief learning officer was an inflection point. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, I was uh, an undergrad at Berkeley, so I, you know, and these 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 four principles were were latent at Berkeley even when I was here in the late 70s and and 80s. I think so so I'm I'm geared as as an economist. That's what my PhD is in. Economists like to think about incentives and decision rights and agency problems and so forth. Um, so when I was at Goldman though, what, what what it was less about the content of the culture at Goldman. It was more about the execution of culture or what I like to call intentionality. Hmm. What does intentionality around culture really look like? Boy, did I get to see that. And so I was, uh, my title was chief learning officer, which meant that I was ex officio on what was called the operating committee of the HR division. They called it human capital management. So Mm -hmm. I was on the operating committee of of HCM. So I got to see all the bonuses and all the discussions about the engine room of what does culture look like? What does compensation look like? What does HR look like? Mm -hmm. Employee relations, all of that. And, you know, so I got to see what the engine room looked like. And and boy, are are they intentional. And so when I got back here, I realized, man, we, we have a terrific latent culture but no intentionality around culture. Hmm. And having seen that intentionality is really what got me going. I see. And so, you know, it's, it's been almost, what, uh, eight years now since you've codified the uh, Defining Leadership Principles back in 2010. What kind of impact have you seen with the faculty, with the student body? I mean, we are new students. Julia is graduating, uh, actually, in a couple of weeks. All of us have only been here for about a year or two. Yeah. What kind of impact have you seen over the years? Well, you know, you said when, when you codified, right? We codified. It was really, uh, you know, lots and lots of people were involved and ideas were bubbling up from our advisory board, from our students. It was a recruiter who first said to us, you know, why I hire your students, I hire them because they have confidence without attitude. And we mm-hmm. wrote that down and ran with it, right? So it's it's not like uh, I wrote them down. But in <laughs> any event, we, we did work work on institutionalizing them, um, codifying and, and driving them through business processes. And... One of the most important ones is how we select our students, also our faculty and our staff. But I mean, on the on the student admissions, it's it's foundational to who we are. And we sort of went into each of our six degree programs and said, what piece of how we attract students and and admit them and then yield them 
all of those pieces together, how can we change what we do? How do we change the way we do the interview processes? How do we change the interview assessment form, for crying out loud? How do we train interviewers? How right. do we do uh, letters of evaluation? How do all, all of that, right? And so you break down in any one program, take the, the evening weekend MBA program, there are like 10, 12 different sub-processes for how we bring people in. We changed all of it where we felt it would be productive to do so. Bottom line is, you end up leaning every little decision. It's not like culture's... The only thing we look at when admitting people, that's obviously not the case. But when you lean every admission decision into this, including sort of never crossing certain lines, um, you get a chemistry, a kind of macro outcome in the class that is palpable. People arrive and it's like, wow, I know you're totally different than I am and with totally different experiences, but we share something that's very special. Mm -hmm. And students arrive feeling that way. And it, it changes the experience they have while they're here. Not just in being heartwarming, but it's sort of like people will say, uh, my classmates are invested in my success. It's sort of like that's what Beyond Yourself looks like, among mm -hmm. many other things, right? So it it really adds to the education. It's not just a nice to have. I will say, um, having interviewed a couple of students now in the full time <coughs> EW and the executive program, one of the things that they've consistently mentioned to me, even the incoming students that I've met for uh, for next year, is that what brought them to Haas was the fact that when they came to com uh, campus to visit, Haas was the only school where they would run into students, current students, and students would give them the time, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes to sit down and just chat with them. Mm -hmm. And that's something that they didn't find elsewhere. And I thought that was a very interesting point. That's very unique to us. Yeah. I so. think fully consistent with what, what the core of those principles are about. Well, let me, if I could add to that, I totally agree with what you just said. And we need to get more people to come and experience it, right? Mm -hmm. I think we'd have twice as many applications and maybe more than that if people knew that it was really real. Mm -hmm. Because every organization has a set of principles or values tacked up on the wall or on the website. But the fraction that make it really real is small. So mm -hmm. people are rationally skeptical. Right. And... Once they come and visit and they see it, it's like, wow, this is the place for me. It hits me right here, right in the heart, right? Yeah. Um, but so that's part of why it's so valuable to have people like you making the time because it's part of how we communicate that it's real, right? Right. And so, so it's incredibly valuable for you to be investing in, in that experience for those that are considering coming here. Over the years, have you found any of the defining principles to be more challenging than others? And I ask this because... You know, I spoke with Julia recently about the the four defining leadership principles, and student always and beyond yourself seems to come very easily for us because it's it's very personal, right? Yeah. Whereas question the status quo and confidence without attitude felt a little bit more challenging. Yeah, in the sense that um, we've we've even heard this among some of our fellow classmates is uh, sometimes we feel like we have too much of the without attitude, and not enough confidence. Mm -hmm. And with questioning the status quo, that we tend to become complainers and not actually questioning a status quo. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, um, thanks for raising it. It's a wonderful question. You know, I think on questioning the status quo, and and I, I, you know, isn't there a better way to do this? Right. That, mm -hmm. that how we question the status quo really matters. Right. There's a lot of questioning the status quo that can just 
literally be disruptive and not particularly constructive. Mm. Um, so, so when we talk about, isn't there a better way to do this, right? Part of it is, is there a different path here that we can come to a consensus around, that we can paint a picture of and, and, and make happen, right? So I think the toolkit around not just questioning the status quo, but making the ta- status quo adapt and evolve and change, right? That, that's part of the toolkit we're developing. So I, I would like to think that even if people felt like their habit of mind was questioning the status quo when they got here, mm-hmm. at the end of their program, they feel like they know how to do it in a really constructive way and right. make change happen. So that's that's where I would I would put a point on that one. On confidence without attitude, one of the wonderful things in my mind about that phrase is that it has a natural tension built into it, right? Often supremely confident people uh, have a lot of attitude. I mean, it, it's bound up with, with ego issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so this one's hard. This one's always hard. It's designed to have a kind of dialectic in it, right? And um, so that was one of the things when we first wrote it down, you know, there are a few words that we, on, on the culture card or other places where we describe what is confidence without attitude, and there are a few sentences. And I remember just before we went to print talking about what are we going to put in there? And, you know, we were conscious then that, you know, look, this is a business school, so bring on the strivers, right? We didn't want to just write down humility or, or without attitude, right? right? Those are wonderful things, but this is a business school. And so confidence was a really important word to put out front. Uh, at the same time, though, we also had to be conscious about what people heard, right? When people in Sao Paulo or, or New York, right, they hear without attitude because it is such a signature quality of who we are. Mm. But we really have tried to be as intentional as we can in not dialing down confidence, right? right. Because I think that is an unintended consequence or can be. So while I do not believe that we have landed in a in an equilibrium, if I can use the, the term, <laughs> that that you know has where we've unintentionally dialed down confidence. I, but we have to remain intentional because we want the strivers. Julia? So I'm one of those people who chose Haas over other schools because of culture, and I never regretted it. Uh, and my question for you would be, so it was easy to live with DLPs while during my two years in Haas mm. just because we help each other to do this. Yes. Community is so strong over here. But I'm graduating in two weeks, mm. and I start my real-world job this summer, and so will Uh, 200s of my classmates. And do you have any advice for us mm. for how can we deal with people who do not necessarily share our values and how can we still exemplify and live by DLPs in environments that do not necessarily help us to do that? Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful question and a very important one because the world needs all kinds. The world has all kinds. We will... When, when you graduate, you will go to organizations that, that have all kinds of people. I think part, at the end of the day, if these values have deep meaning for us as individuals, then it's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. Mm. So sort of violating them because the local context says, ah, I can be more successful by not living this way, that's never the right choice in my mind. The reality, though, of, so uh, let me take Goldman Sachs as an example. I'd like to think that those four defining principles describe me pretty well. Goldman Sachs is well known to be a very commercial place, and the style of leadership is is quite heavily directing, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a, a word that is used even internally there. Uh, I had to 
I had to work within that context. I understood that my style of leadership was not the majority style of leadership. But I did not depart from my style of leadership because I knew it was who I am mm -hmm. and, and I knew that it was part of my identity. I also strongly believe that it's sort of the direction that effective management is going in the economy. And I, I would hasten to say even within a, a wonderful institution like Goldman Sachs. So I think part of it is just making sure you understand the whole world does not look at the world this way. Uh, you shouldn't demand that the whole world looks at the world this way. But you, could, you should stick to your identity of what matters for you and understand how that interweaves with the people around you. So how do you, how do you become a, a great leader and manager knowing that not everybody on your team is, is motivated quite this way? And I believe it requires a lot of listening and respect to different perspectives. Absolutely. Well, that's a great point and absolutely fundamental, right? You, one of the things that I remember somebody said to me, you know, when you think about what's the, what's the best advice you've ever got, and that's, the, you know, the single best piece of advice is a hard question, but, you know, what are the top five pieces of advice you ever got uh, is not a hard question for people to come up with two or three uh, examples. One, I remember somebody said to me, you need to speak into their listening, right? You really need to know what That, what they're going to hear and, and how they need to hear it. Or if you're managing change, right, the notion is, how do I solve your problem? I'm not trying to get you to go along with this change because I want it and it even looks good, but sort of how does your going along with this change help to solve your problem? Mm -hmm. And how do, I, how do I speak into your listening in that way? And so exactly what you just said, and I think we have toolkits, we need it, we do have toolkits in our program that help you do that better. Confirmed. <laughs> Well, speaking of the change in the journey that you were speaking about, the defining principles that the team that you built around came up with and defined is, I think, uh, one of the hallmark of your tenure here at Haas and among many other things. And, Thank you. you know, we're excited, you know, for the future of Haas. We're well positioned to continue being a premier uh, MBA program in the nation and globally. And I want to know, what do you envision or what do you see in the next five, 10 years Haas will become or will continue evolving to be? Well, you know, there, there's so many, it's a neat question and there's so many uh, dimensions to, to an answer to that question. So sticking with the culture theme, because it's where we started, but I'll, I'll go beyond that in the rest of my answer. I mean, part of it is, all right, exactly how does this look like in, in, in the way it it helps us strengthen our already strong relationships with companies, with job opportunities for our graduates, right? We want every recruiter who comes here to, to know about these four defining principles, to know that it's part of the promise of the school, to know that it's part of what differentiates the school, because other schools don't look like this. And I have to affirm, nobody has said to me in the recruiting world, these four principles don't quite map into what we're trying to do. People say, if you can deliver that, I want more of it. Mm -hmm. But we need to get that message out even more so that every single one, you know, says you're a target school in part because you are delivering on those principles as well as talent and other things, right? So mm -hmm. I think we have further to go down that road. That's one of the things, you know, it's just going to expand job opportunities for our students. But when you can differentiate in the hiring marketplace based on values, Holy smokes, that's, that's a great way to go into the marketplace, as well as many other, other things that are valuable about our graduates, right? The, the skills, the mindsets, et cetera. So that's part of the answer. Uh, there's another part of the answer that goes even beyond. If you say, well, how do you, how do you, we've already talked about these, not just as defining principles, but as defining leadership principles. This is part of our leadership promise. We, we see 
the needs in society and in the economy of, of leaders evolving over time and evolving in this direction. Organizations are becoming flatter. Mm -hmm. uh, authority, decision rights are getting more and more distributed, right? It's less and less of a command and control world. And the idea that you, you influence beyond formal authority is absolutely essential. So how do you build trust and followership? You know, an officer's eat first, i.e. a not-beyond-yourself person, is not very good at building trust and followership, <laughs> right? I mean, they may have lots of direct reports and they may have a productive uh, division or business, but people know what she or he's going to do when the going gets rough, right? Mm. And officers eat last people are, are, do build a lot of trust and followership. Confidence without attitude supports that. At the same time, it's sort of like being obsessed with making things better, always questioning the status quo. There's got to be a better way to do this. When you bundle all that stuff together, it's an incredibly large leadership promise. And then the third part of my answer to your question would be, you know, there are other big visions about where we are in this geography, where we sit in the world, making Berkeley, for example, a vision statement we are working with. We are making Berkeley the preeminent institution for the pairing of business and STEM. And it's sort of like, that's totally doable. Berkeley STEM fields are incredibly strong. We are in this geography. We have, you know, a lot of connective tissue between deans and departments. We've got new dual degree programs with engineering and chemistry and data science, both at the undergrad and the grad level. It's like, whoa. So you put all of that stuff together, sort of a, a, a leadership brand that is tightly defined, a, a culture that's an even bigger value proposition to recruiters, and then this vision's like, let's make Berkeley the preeminent institution for the pairing of business and STEM, among other things. But you just add those things up together, and it's like, we've got a lot of headroom the next five or ten years. I'm really excited about that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Was that was there your big bet question? Oh, no, I had one more. Just <laughs> Okay. Because you, you're a man of so many ideas, and I heard most of it, but I just it's like a fun takeaway question. Okay. Um, you know, your tenure's about to end at Haas, but if you had one last big bet or initiative you could take on, what would it be? Mm. Well, you know, I, I assume you want a big bet, right? This yeah, year. grandiose. Okay. okay, scare me. All right, I'll scare you. Um, one of the things that I, I called the dean of the College of Engineering here, absolutely astonishingly good College of Engineering, as people know. This is about five years ago. I said, all right, this is a crazy idea, but I'm just, just stirring us up. I said, what if we merged Berkeley's College of Engineering and business school? What would that look like? Wow. That would get the attention of higher education, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's big and it's bold and uh, there's no faculty buy-in yet or, you know, anyways, it's one of those crazy ideas. But that idea triggered a bunch of kind of, you know, intermediate ideas. Like, could we create a new department? on campus that lives exactly in between. So not just launching new dual degree programs, MET, Management Entrepreneurship and Technology at the undergrad level, we are just launching an MBA, MEng, Master's in Engineering program, but sort of really doing the structural transformation. And this is getting discussed. So will it happen? I don't know, but that's the kind of big bet that takes the assets on the ground and says, let's leverage them to the hilt. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for My taking pleasure. the time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank we, uh, you. We want to wish you the best. 
uh, for the coming years, and we really hope you will come back and visit us. Oh, look, I'm still on the faculty. They okay. haven't thrown me off the faculty yet. <laughs> I want to be very clear. I'm still, so I have a sabbatical year, and then I go back to teaching. Oh, I will great. teach my international finance elective uh, in two years. I won't teach over the next year, but I will go back into teaching. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm not leaving. Thanks. Okay. All right. We'll see you soon then. Yes. Cheer- <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in today. My aim is to bring the Haas community closer together through your stories. We're always looking for Haasies willing to share their stories and experiences so that we can give you more insights into the different programs, different careers, and ultimately different perspectives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to email me for suggestions on how I can improve this podcast, or if you have any recommendations on people or content you'd like to hear. My email is reachshawn at berkeley.edu. That's spelled R-E-A-C-H-S-E-A-N at berkeley.edu. 